Just a little review from last week. And willpower, right? Willpower and delight. What did we talk about willpower and delight? Like delight is our, our real essence. Uh, we can't explain like why you like something. Okay. If you want, you can come closer. Doesn't matter. Ratzon yeah. uh, will a real devotion to a higher power. To what extent do I desire a thing? Oh my gosh, broke my <laughs> mm-hmm. A will so, is different from a desire. It's an extension of the inner self. So what is the difference between will and desire? A desire is for a thing. Mm-hmm. And a will is? A will is an extension of the self towards the outer. Right. The willpower is the extension of the inner self and how it expresses itself towards um, elements that are outside of it. So now that we understand the idea of willpower and delight... There's only one element that we need to understand before we move on to the mechanics of Kabbalah. And that is Atzmut, the absolute essence. That's like compared to the light because you can't explain it, right? Like the slave can't, like has to have explanation. Well, that, was, that was last week right, to a certain right. extent. But now we have to explain it. Now, if to, to order to truly understand atzmut, which is the essence of the individual, we have to understand two more terms. The first one is teva, which means nature, and the other one is nisim, which means miracles. So, tanug, delight, is the highest power of the soul. There's nothing that is connected to the innermost power of the soul more than delight. So, why do we need to understand delight? Because the only way that we can truly understand Atzmut, which is the essence of God, is to understand Tanug. Tanug, delight, is our analogy for ourselves in connection to the essence of God. If I were to say, what's the essence of God? We could never even fathom that. So we're going to need a metaphor to truly understand the essence of God. We have no choice. We need that metaphor. So if we need that example to understand the essence of God, we're going to use Tanuk. We're going to use delight as that example. Why? You, you, you Tanuk? Tanuk. You, you, you um, translated as... Delight? I'm translating as delight. What is, but what does Tanuk mean in Hebrew? Like Tanuk. But what's, Tanuk. It's, like a pleasure, no? Yeah. But what's the root of the word? Do we, do we get into that analysis of the root of the word, where the word, what families of the word? The etymology of the word? Yeah. No? Okay, I don't know. Because sometimes that helps. Okay, I, I, I can look into it. But, okay. No, it's just, you know, sometimes that helps. Right. Sometimes you get some, some nice clues from doing that. I'm looking at the, uh, so, let's just talk about a, a, a simple desire. I desire chocolate. chocolate. Huh. Of course, coffee. Desire chocolate. Can I, I? Can I explain why I like chocolate? I don't like chocolate, but those people who like chocolate. Can I? Can Can you explain why you like chocolate? It's really good. What does that mean? What What does that mean? What does that mean? It means. Uh, it means you, you get. Uh, you get a sensation that. <laughs> what sensation? Like, that's cool. I mean, to me, 
It's very good. You see it. For some reason, you want it. You taste it. You're like, okay. That was it. It was one second. No, wonderful. That's nice. Let's move on. What, what, why, do, why do you like chocolate? You like chocolate? Not that much. What do you like? What do you desire? Oh, you will feel off at me. Health. Health. Okay. Why do you desire health? To go forward with my life if I shall give more years to go. So you desire health. You desire to, uh, to spend time with your grandkids. Exactly. Can you explain why? Can you explain your relationship with your grandkids? Because, I, like you said, Ta'anu being with them. <laughs> what do you desire? What's your Ta'anuk? What I desire now? I desire peace. Can you explain it? Uh, yeah. I mean, how long do you have? Right. <laughs> Most people, if it's a true Ta'anuk, and that's the difference. Yeah. The moment that it's a true Ta'anuk, it's not definable. You can't really, truly articulate. You could, you could start by saying what it's not. You can start by leaving out elements. You can say, oh, well, I mean, my relationship with my grandkids is not like my relationship with my kids. Mm-hmm. So you, you can start by defining it based on the parameters of what it isn't. But you can't truly understand it. Okay, I like chocolate more than I like vanilla. Can you explain that? Not really. But you, so, so the first thing we do to understand Tanuk is we create its parameters. And the way we create its parameters is we create these barriers. Oh, I like it in comparison to something else. I like it more than I like something else. Though both of them are our desires, our pleasures. They're both Tanuk, which means vanilla can also be a Tanuk. The, the kids, it's also a Tanuk. So now, the reason why I'm starting off this way is because today we're going to try to understand the essence, the essence of God. And we're going to do that by creating the parameters around that. So, what are the parameters? In order to understand the concept of Atzmut, which is the essence of God, we have to explain that there are three ideas that are mentioned in Kabbalah. And they're, they're, each one is unique in its own way. Number one is Teva, is nature. Remember, we're creating the parameters here. Nature. What is nature? The sun didn't come out yet, but if the sun rose this morning, would you think that tomorrow there's not going to... The sun is there. I mean, it's been covered by clouds. Like nature is the, is the lowest level of like the sun hides in it. Yeah, but the, 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 there's a natural process to things. Yeah. Right? Usually if you plant a seed into the ground mm. and you water it and you care for it and you give it a lot of love, it will grow into whatever it's going to grow. You know what I call it? I call it regularity. Regularity. Okay. <laughs> regularity. So... The so, regular aspect of existence. So teva is nature. Somebody knew how to take the seed and turn it into this flower. Why? Because they understood the science behind it. And as a result of understanding the science, they're able to do it. Do they really know how the seed turned into the flower? They have no idea. They can use words like photosynthesis. They can use 
um, recipes, recipe, seed, water, soil. The, the, oh, all these concepts. But the truth is they have no idea. It's an, it's an incredible thing. They have no idea how, where it comes from. It's an incredible thing that a little tiny seed, you put it into soil and you water it and you give it a little love and it turns into a flower. Yeah, and just because we've observed it a million times and it does it, it, it doesn't put us above it. It doesn't make us understand the essence of it whatsoever. So, so we know that when we do certain things, certain things happen. So nature is still beyond us. Mm-hmm. We know the sun is going to rise and we know the sun is going to set. But is the sun rising and setting? It's really truly beyond us. It's just in our comparison to the way that we look at the rest of the world, the sun is rising and it's setting. Why? Because here we are in Montreal and the way that the, you know, the, the sun is, is in reference to our place in the earth. So it's, it's all, it's all, uh, you know, this, the earth is the way, the way it's orbiting. But isn't it, you know, I think when, when it, the story also of idolatry was, there was an idea that, you know, people used to believe in God and then, then they started believing in the sun and the moon and then, and then they started like, and, and then they started believing in these, right? Yep. And it's funny because as soon as we can see something and name it, we start to feel that we master it. Interesting. We understand it. As soon as we can name Defining things helps us master the things. Therefore, the greatest uh, heist of all that we did is when we created an idol out of God himself. Right. All right. And and that's the precondition for what? That's the precondition for atheism. There's, you cannot deny God until you claim to understand what God is. Right? So in order to be an atheist, you have to have gone through a step of idolatry create an image of God, and then say, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's bullshit, you know? So it's, it's funny how that, that ability to name, it gives us a sense of being above and understanding. You see it in the very adolescent tone of, of, of modern scientists. Well, I think that in general, for example, and, and this is, I mean, now today it's not as prevalent anymore. I always say labels are for shirts, not for people. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but... People, you know, psychology likes to define certain emotions and certain behaviors, mm-hmm. right? The, you know, just the idea that at some certain point there was all these kids running around that were calling themselves ADHD. Mm-hmm. You know, who, who made you ADHD because you can't sit in your seat when in the classroom? Yeah. I had, I had a student, I, I used to teach special ed. I had a student and when he comes to me, he says, I'm better than a doctor. I said, really? You're better than a doctor? Tell me how you're about the doctor. The doctor only has one D after his name. I have two Ds. <laughs> so it's interesting how we like to define things. The Medrash tells an amazing story. The story about how Abraham found God. It says, there's a big debate of how old he was. According to some opinions, he was three when this story happens. Other opinions say he was 13. Others say that he was in his 30s. It doesn't matter as far as the time. I'm just giving you the reference for it. So he comes, he was, um, the, the, the background of the story was that Abraham was born and there was a stargazer of the king who was Nimrod who saw a particular star that shot up from the home of Terach, who was the father of Abram, from their home. So the, the night he was born, he made a big party for him. 
And at that party, the stargazer walks out and he sees the shooting star that shot up. You know, usually shooting stars go down. Shot up from his house into the sky. And then it, it kind of overtook four stars. And it consumed them. And he went over to Nimrod and he said, I have to tell you, this little boy that was born tonight, he's going to consume you. He's going to take you over. Terach, the father of Avram, is the general of Nimrod's army. They actually had just killed out 300,000 people from the family of Yethet. Where was that place? That was in Aram, in the city of Aram. That's why he named him Av Aram, Avram, the father of Ram. Because that was the city. He named him after the city that they just conquered. They killed out all these people. They were murderers. They were terrible. They're really terrible, disgusting people. So he calls him, it's the night his son is born. He calls him into his chambers. And he says, oh, Terach, dear Terach. I have, um, I have a proposal for you. The child that was born to you tonight, I'd like you to give him to me. And in exchange, I will give you gold and silver to the roof of your home. That's the way the Midrash describes it. To the roof of your home. Terach turns to him and he said, Dear King, remember last year for my birthday, you gave me a stallion, gave me a horse. He said, I have a friend, his name is Oni. Oni wants to give me a bushel of barley in return for the horse. Do you think it's a good deal? The king says, of course it's not a good deal. What are you going to do with the barley if you have no horse to eat it? He said, exactly, king. What am I going to do with the gold and silver if I have no son to inherit it? Nimrod realizes what he's saying, and he says, you have three days to give me the kid or I kill you. He goes home. His wife's name was? Abram's mother's name? Avram. His mom. His father's Terach. You knew his father. Of course, yeah. But his mom, is his mom in the Bible? Her name? Hmm. I know a Rachel. You know, you don't know her name. Her name is Amatlai Bat Karnava. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, what was you it? Amatlai. Amatlai. Yeah. Amatlai. Yeah. Okay. Oh. 
Never heard of it. Amatlai Bat Karnava. You know why we don't know? Because the Bible statue is Moshin. Because the Bible talks more about the men than the women. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call it what it is. <laughs> but we should know her name. She's the mother of our... The women too. Yeah, I know. The, she's the mother of uh, Avram. No, right. We should know you. her name. So. Absolutely. Exactly. It's a pretty big deal. Amatlai had a maidservant. Her name was Togarma. She had a child the night before Avram. She overheard the conversation. Amatlai overhears the conversation between Nimrod and Terach and realizes that Terach can come home and take Avram. And so she changes the blankets of the kids. Terach walks in, grabs the kid that looks like his because of the blanket. That's how he recognizes the child. And brings him to Nimrod. But really... Men. Huh? Men. <laughs> but really, it was not his child. Nimrod kills the child and gives him gold and silver. Meanwhile, Amathlai goes up to the caves right outside Mesopotamia, or Kuta, it was called. They, they lived in Mesopotamia, but the city where they lived was called Kuta. Later, it was called Kazdim. And then after that, they called it Ur Kazdim, after the story of when Abraham was thrown into the fire, was the fire of Ur Kazdim. But first, this, at this point, it's called Kuta. They, they, they run it, she runs into the hills, into the cave. Now, we don't know exactly what happened. According with the baby. With the baby. Some opinions... And, and, and her, her servant, she's, she, she she's not in the picture, she's not in the picture. <laughs> Some opinions say that she left the baby there yeah. and went back home and an angel raised Abraham. Huh. Some say that she came back. She would come, go back and forth because she didn't want it to be... Uh, there's a big debate of how he was raised. Hmm. But we know that he was raised in the cave. Really? Yeah. You don't know the story? Don't, did not know. You, you, you didn't know the story? Yeah, I know that story, but I didn't know a Methlai. So all I knew about Abraham is that he worked in the, his dad's uh, idol shop. So one day, Lech Lecha. So, uh, Terach... That's all I know about his life. Terach takes all the money that Nimrod gives him, retires from the army, hmm. and he had a dream of opening up an idol shop. Hmm. And that's how he opens the idol shop. I didn't know he was a general of the army also. This is, all comes from where? This is not in the Bible. No, it's in the Midrash. The Bible says he was born and then he leaves his father's house. That's what I'm saying. How old was he when he left his father's house? He's 75. So this is the the first... When was he in the furnace? Not yet, not yet. Wait. He was was, was in the 70s. The furnace happens right before he leaves. Mm. The furnace happens right before Lech Lecha. Yeah. The furnace happens before Lech Right before Lech Lecha. Is the furnace in the Bible or in the Midrash? Midrash. It's all, it's all Midrash. It's all Midrash. Let me ask you the Midrash. Yes. What is it exactly as a text? What is it? It's a yeah. text. I know it's, it's written. Text. It's written by, by the same authors of the Talmud. Okay. And so it's, it's part of the Oral Torah. It's part of the Oral Torah. And it's written, it's, it was written the same time as the Talmud was written. Is it and a lot of, of it Mishnah? was... Huh? part of the Mishnah? No. It's not part of the Mishnah or the Talmud. 
It's it's separate. It was the Hamal. Separate. It's a completely separate. Well, there's many midrashim. There's hundreds of midrashim. But are they the, 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 in a book? The many books. Many books. There's and what mi- are those books? The, the the most famous of all the midrashim is the Midrash Rabbah. It's called the Midrash Rabbah. They look like the Talmud, like yeah. the that they, that they have. There's also um. There's also well, that's because a lot of the 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 Vilna Press. No, but I'm just saying, like so yeah. a lot of them, they look exactly. Yeah, like that. exactly. Because a lot of them were, were the printing press in Vilna was the one that kind of made the pages, so that's where they all look similar. Are they structured a little bit like the Talmud? Not Text so much. Similar. No, they're more homiletics. They're stories. Stories. There, there's uh, the Yalkut Shmoni is also a very well known one. There's so, many, many midrashim. It's a pretty major thing, the midrashim. Major, major. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, we know, we know the Torah, we know the Nebim, we know the... Is it part of the Ketubim? No. Not even. Not at all. So why don't we talk about it? It's not even part of the Tanakh. We do talk about it all the time. I mean, I don't know. Not really. I mean, you, like, your, your people. Your people, your people. <laughs> when we were growing up in a Jewish school, the Midrash did not exist. It was... We had the Talmud, there was the, the Tanakh, which was the Torah, and again, the It's very hard to truly understand the stories of the Torah without, the, the, without the Midrash. So the Midrash really, it sheds light because we know, I mean, the Torah is not a history book. The Torah is a book of lessons. So if it wasn't necessary, these stories were not necessarily being there, they're not going to be in there yet. We're all fascinated by Abraham, who was our forefather. We want to know what happened for the first 75 years of his life. So... I want to get to... I'm, the Midrash I, fills in a lot of the stories. The Midrash fills in a lot of the stories. Mm-hmm. Okay. A lot of the stories. So anyways, go back. I, I so just, I, I'm really... I, I want to get to the points where he finds God. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to go through the whole, yeah, sto- yeah. the whole story of his life. So we don't know exactly who raised him, but at some point, he ventures out of the cave for the first time. And he was... We don't know if he's three, if he's 13... Let's say he's around 13. It makes a little more sense that he's 13, though the Rebbe said he was three. The Rebbe said he was... I know. Maybe the three-year-olds. I guess Rashi, Rashi's much later than Abraham, and he wrote his whole commentary for a five-year-old. So... Right. Maybe we're, we've just gotten that much stupider than... Maybe we're underestimating what a three-year-old... Maybe we're underestimating. So let's say, let's say for the sake of the argument, you can decide. Let's say whatever. He was... He ventures. He he ventures out of the cave for the first time. Now, he's not exposed to the idolatry, to the paganism, to the heathenism of his society yet. He's an innocent child, and he he never saw. He lived in a cave, so he never saw the the luscious greens and the flowers, and he never saw it. And so the midrash says that he sees a flower. The first thing he sees is a flower blooming. And he says, wow, how did this happen? <laughs> there must be a creator. And he follows the flower up to, follows the ray of the sun up to the sun. And he says, oh, great light, you made this flower bloom. I will worship you and serve you. And sun. The sun. And he serves the sun. He sits there serving the sun and worshiping the sun all day. But at the end of the day, the sun disappears mm-hmm. and the moon appears. And he says, oh, great moon, you have overpowered the sun. You must be the worship of the God. And all night, 
he worships the moon. And then in the morning, he sees the sun appears again. And it goes like this over, over and over and over. And he, then he starts worshiping the clouds and he worships the rain and he worships elements, elements. To, try to, to try to really understand it. And eventually he says, well, if the sun is disappearing and the moon is disappearing and the rain comes and goes and the clouds comes and go and the wind, there must be something higher than all of it. And this is Abraham's process of discovering God. Hmm. That's in the Midrash. Yeah. We should print that out. And do what with it? Read it. There are so many things in the Midrash. Amazing. But this is pretty. The best. This is literally the first first monotheistic man. This is the man who has the relationship with God. That, uh, that is uninterrupted in his day because people are going to say no I do he has a relationship with God he yes there is I mean he he's pretending it's God well he's no. not but it, this no. is his process of discovering God I think it's pretty major Abraham's process of discovering God who today is the father major. of the the father of the great three religions that's right it's, it's, it's the, I the actually, revelation of God that remains uninterrupted in his day it's I have that, a, it's his I have, so, a, I have a gift that I'm going to send you right after this class. I was so fascinated with this that um, eight years ago, not, no, it's now longer. It's, almost, it's uh, 12 years ago, I set out, I had, two, I had two dreams. One was to explain to children this story because I thought it was so important for kids to know about Abraham, specifically. And the second was, I wanted to create an animation that would be Disney quality. Yeah. Yeah. So I had two dreams. 12 years ago, Svi and I wrote a script and eight years ago, it was turned into an animation. So there's actually an animation and I'll send you of 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 the entire story. It's a 48 minute animation. That's great. And it tells the whole story of Avram's childhood. And you have it in what format? I'll send it to you and I have it as MP4, good enough for you? Yeah, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I'll send it to you. I want it. Because you can show it to your kids. It's amazing. That's great. I do most of the voices on it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen it? No, I heard your interview with, uh, on YouTube, there's that interview of you. Oh, yeah? When have you shown to the kids this, uh, this movie? I'll send it to you also, you can show it to the kids. You are what? Sorry. I, I, it, it was... It uh, cost $1.8 million to create. And I, we sold about 150,000 DVDs at the time, which was very, very good for a Jewish film, but it did not cover the cost even closely. And so I sold, it, I sold it to NBC. And I don't know what they've done with it. No, nothing. It's called Young Abraham. Young Abraham. Yeah. Wow. I love it. You it's, sold it? That's really interesting. Yeah, so I, I have no, I don't have any, uh, I, I, we, we have so much money in debt, like I, there was no way to, to, yeah, to do it. I had to make a big sale in order to no, get... What you, what you describe is the story of 99% of all audiovisual production yeah. ever get made. Yeah. Um, but, but it was a dream. It wasn't a money maker. It was really a dream I had. I really felt that there needs to be something that was authentic. And you could that send would, it in a link. You could send it to me in a link. Yeah, well, now I can just send you. I, I don't, so I don't have it anymore. So, but I can send you the link. Right. Right. Maybe we can buy the rights. 
We go back to them. We okay. repatriate the rights. Of course. Check it out. You're not the right person. I'm an entertainment lawyer. That's what I do. It's just, uh, <laughs> uh, reach out to NBC uh, this afternoon. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm going to be able to. It's one of their subsidiaries. It's one of their subsidiaries. I can, I, I can give you their information. Maybe, Maybe they just shelved it and it's completely meaningless and whatever they get for it. Is no, I think that they, I, I saw that they didn't use Young Abraham, but they used all the models and they created other films from the models. It was a subsidiary. So the question they, would be what would you want to do with it if you want to do something? Oh, I, 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 I don't, I don't, I, I'm happy that it exists. You're just happy that it I'm exists. happy that it exists. I know, I, I know that sounds strange, but you I'm very happy. You too? I put I've, I put pieces of it on YouTube. Just randomly? Randomly, put it. You're just not allowed to make monetization on it because you don't know the, the rights, but just put it up. If you want to take it down, you can take it down. It's completely legal. You should put it on YouTube one day. 100% legal. I would love to do that. Just put it. To, have you sold all I'm going to put it on YouTube. How's that? I'm going to put it on YouTube. <laughs> it's legal. It's legal. It's the DMCA. You get digital millennium copyright. I've been noticing takedown. It's all thousand billion percent legal. What's illegal is in order to get um, uh, advertising monetization from YouTube, you have to make a rep and warranty that you own the rights. That's what you can't do. But as long as it's free, even them, they don't mind. It's just publicity. It's it's going to be out there. And if anybody's going to, if if it gets ten million views and there's some advertising dollars there, they're the only ones who are allowed to recuperate that advertising money. That's the only thing. But if the, and the copyright owner has the right to ask YouTube to take it down, and YouTube has to take it down immediately. So we, we have the power to put it up, but they have the power to take it down. But in practice, they never do, really. When people don't make the monetization, they just allow it to go there, it's publicity, and who cares? So I'll give it to you. Cool. And you can- I'm gonna put it up on YouTube. You, you, you can put it up on YouTube. I will. And we'll try to repatriate the rights from NBC. Yeah. No, okay. <laughs> Anyway, so it'll be, it's very this good. This is great. It's a great story. And it's all from the Midrash. All from the Midrash. There's so many unbelievable and not, stories. And you know what else I'll give you with it? Yeah. I will give you my source sheets. I'll give you the, the, the script also. I'll give, you the, I'll give you the script, but I'll also give you the source sheets. So you can see every single Midrash. Every single thing in there has a source in the Midrash, and I have it all sourced. There's so many. So you can literally watch the film with the source sheet, and you can see how every single element comes from the Midrash. Why is Judaism, I have a question for you now, a little bit like, why? So you know how there's different mythologies, right? There's, there's Norse mythology, there's Greek mythology, there's, right? there's all these different mythologies, right? And a lot of them have been used in today's pop culture, right? To create films, to create books, to create stories, to create, to be out there. In the Why hasn't the Jewish mythology? Why has Jewish mythology been shut out completely, almost completely? I'll tell you why. Even though Jews run Hollywood. I have two. Judaism, but I'm just saying. I have two. Why has I have two never hypoth- been made into an epic Hollywood it's movie? True. Why? David and Goliath. That's not that's not an exciting scene. David and Goliath, really? Hollywood? Hercules, never did that. Hercules? I mean sense. Hercules doesn't even come close to Samson. Samson. Samson has never been done. You know I had a pro- I have a project like for years of doing a King David script. And I, I Do you I, know that I wrote one? Really? Yeah. I wrote parts of one too. I, I went through the it's it's in the it's in the uh, it's in Shmuel, the book of Shmuel, yeah. right? I wrote I went through the book of Shmuel. It's called researching. it's called it was going to be my 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 uh, my sequel to Young Abraham. I really? wrote a I wrote a film called Little Davy, and it's a story of a kid that's getting bullied in school, mm. 
because I so wanted you're to, modernizing it. Like, no, yeah. no, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to create a synthesis between today's world and David's world. And also, I wanted to create the first Jewish superhero. Yeah. And I thought David would be it. David is it. So it's basically a story of this kid who's getting bullied in school. He meets this old man named Eli, okay. Elijah, okay. Eliyahu. Yeah. And Eli tells him the story of David. And you see they kind of interpose and he sees in the same story as David kind of progresses. And he, his, him being bullied by Goliath and him saying to the Jewish people, don't be bullied. Mm. And so he learns about bullying through, mm. through, you know, da- through the story genre, of David. In that genre, it's very hard to pull off a script like that. Yeah. It's like level of difficulty. You just went from nine to like 25. I know. Um, but in that genre, there's a, there's a movie that very successfully did that recently. I don't know if you guys saw The Little Prince. There's a version of The Little Prince that just got uh, released like last year or two years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from, from the book, uh, but yeah, anyway, so, so, you know, I mean, usually it's the story of the little prince. This one here, it's a story of a modern family and a little girl and this and that. And, and, and at some point it, it goes into that back and forth of the little prince and today's reality and then the story and then the relationships between the two. It's really good. It's very, very well done. It achieved that balance. But I think that, so hard, within my... Hard to do. Hard to do. So now, but, right now, great. I'm in the middle of producing um, Samson. What do you mean middle of producing? I'm middle of producing it. With who? I'm saying I just, we just, I did the script. I just did the audio of it. We're just finishing the audio. And you're producing it as a, as what? As an animation. As an animation. Because animations are amazing. I love animations. Animations are great. And that little prince is all animation too, by the way. Wow. Very, very cool. Yeah, but why? You were going to explain to me why. So the first thing is because um, the, the the midrash was always kind of like pushed aside. Like you said, you never heard of it, right? Never heard of it. And the well, second, I've heard, I've obviously heard the word. The second, the second reason is because we believe it's true. We don't believe it's mythology. Hmm. And I think that is what's kept it under wraps. But that is kind of a cop-out answer. It, it, no, it's not a cop-out answer. It's, it's the reality of mythology is mythology. So mythology, you can use, you can use your imagination yeah, to embellish mythology. People in Hollywood don't care that some people believe it's true. They don't care. It's just, is it an interesting, is it an interesting... Like when we did the story of Abraham, well, what I think is amazing about it is... The entire story is sourced in the Midrash. You understand? So we did the entire film. It's not just a random story. It's a complete story sourced in Midrash. Mm-hmm. And I say that if you're doing a story about Midrash, that's what you should do. So let's get back to the idea. So in, in, in Abraham's... In Abraham's... Uh, Journey, he discovers first Teva. He discovers nature. The next thing he discovers, because if you just discover Teva, if you just discover nature, then you're not discovering anything. You have to discover the source. So what does he discover? Number two, Nisim. He discovers miracles. 
And the third is even the most interesting of the three. There's nature, there's miracles, and then there's Ein Balhanes Makir Beniso, the person for whom the miracle happened to. Ein Balhanes Makir Beniso. Beniso or Abai? Shimon Bar, Bar, and there's nothing to do with this. No. And, and the person who person. the miracle happened to. We call them the Baal, the master. The master of the miracle. The master of the miracle does not even recognize the miracle took place. There's no way for someone who experiences a miracle to, to, to recognize that the miracle took place. You know what the proof of that is? How is it possible that the Jewish people who witnessed the 10 plagues in Egypt, who witnessed the splitting of the sea, who witnessed the Sinai experience, we look at those things and we say these are supernatural events. The same people went and worshipped the golden calf. Because to them it wasn't, it wasn't a miracle. But they were great. And the, the, the hardest thing for me, because I always have trouble with that. I'm like, I'm yeah. like what's wrong with them? Yeah, They're stupid. Like, and, and recently I read they were great, great people. Like all the 10 people, the, the 12 spies. So, top people. The, the spies, exactly. Here, this week's Torah portion, yeah. right? The spies, they are top, they're chosen because they're top people. So why are they coming back and, and, and they, saying... They, they want to study Torah and they don't want to leave like the... Right, the, so you can't... Listen. Without the Rebbe, you don't understand it. Exa- exactly. It's really, it's really frustrating, actually. Yes. Without, without Kabbalah, you, you do not understand what happened. It doesn't make sense. The leaders of the Jewish people, this week's Torah portion... The leaders of the Jewish people are chosen. Now Moses said, God told us we're going into the land. So the Peter, the Nisim, the leaders just said, hold on a second, wait, wait, wait. We have to, you, Moses, you're a miracle man. <laughs> you live in a different plane. We live in this world. This world has Teva, it has nature. So we're gonna have to conquer this place by nature. So let's just first go check out. Let's go spy out the land. So Moshe's like, well, we don't really have to. Moshe says to God, he says, you know, let them, if they want to go spy out the land, let them go. Let them. Is that in the Midrash if, as well? What? Is that in the Midrash? No, this that is in the Torah. In the, in the Torah, Moses says, we don't even need yeah, yeah, yeah. the, yeah. the, uh, the spy. Yeah, it's in the Torah. It's in this week's Torah okay. portion. Okay. Moses just doesn't, checking. huh? I'm just checking. It's, it's sources are important. Yeah. <laughs> so Moses like, oh, we don't even need the spies. If you want, so what, what I think, I and mean, this is not in the Torah, but I'm giving a, an, a, a higher explanation. My interpretation is that Moses lived in a w- world of miracles. He's like, what do we need spies for? These, so Moses said, if you want to live in a world of miracles, let's just do it. If you choose to live in a world of nature, it's your choice. Go send spies. I'm not going to stop you. If that's your choice to live in a world of nature. And so they send the top 12 people, one from each of the tribes, the top 12 people. Hmm. 10 of them come back with reports that the land is not conquerable. Hmm. Hold on a second. God said, we're going to take the land. There's giants there. They're going to consume us. What do you mean the land is not conquerable? And so Kabbalah and the, the Rebbe has a beautiful explanation. He says, they weren't, they weren't saying the land was unconquerable. They were saying, why should we leave? Right now we're in the desert. There's a pillar of smoke that protects us by night. A, a, a pillar of fire that protects us by day. We have the manna falling from heaven. 
We have everything. Our clothes are growing on us. We, have, we live in a supernatural world. Why do we want to go plow fields? We live in a supernatural world. Let's stay here. What they were saying is, it's our entire purpose of living in this world is to study Torah and to serve God. Why are we going to go to this land and they have to work, work the land? They thought their state of miracles was nature. That's right. They wanted the state of miracles. They to be got nature. confused between miracles and nature. They thought miracles were nature and nature were miracles. Mm. So. They had the ratui, but now they had the shuv. That's right. Did they want to like go into the material world and like. Mm. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't make sense to them. Why do you have to go? They were Buddhist monks. I don't understand. You want to have a spiritual experience. Let's go on the mountain and meditate. What are you saying meditate on Sherbrooke? Exactly. Very good <laughs> question. It's a very good question. I don't understand. Let's just go on the mountain and meditate the whole day. I'm going to go Let's meditate. Let's not pretend that this I'm going to go not find, relevant to us. I'm going to go find myself a swami. And this, I'm going to yeah. go live there. I'm going to and wear a nice robe. I'm going to wear a robe. There's and, going to be, there's going to be a, a, and I'm going to go on a, on a, on a four-year... There's going to be birds. I don't think I'll be able to do that. Who needs to speak? There's little birds. I have my little day. Everything is, everything is there. Everything is pure. Everything is perfect. Perfect. That's what the, 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 the spies were saying. Perfection. Let's stay in the desert. It's perfection. It's wonderful. It's omdim. Let's omed. Let's stand. Exactly. We're not, we're, not, we're not made to stand. That's, we're not... We have to even, we're the walkers. even when we stand, even when we're we stand, walkers. we can't stand straight. Guys, right? We're, we're moving. Sorry. We're moving even when we stand. That's right. We're moving even when we stand. We can't stand without moving. So, there's nature and there's miracles and there's the most important of the three. There is the, ma- the master. We're going to define it all. The master of the miracle does not recognize that the miracle has taken place. It's always that way. I see it so many times in people's lives and I want to turn to them. I can't always say it. Do you realize that you know, miracle, you know, you're complaining about this, that? People come to me with all their worries and sorrows. I said, you're complaining about this, that, and the other thing. But don't you realize that you have a, it's a miracle? But you can't say that because the person will never see it. I see it because I'm outside of them. And the truth is, I'm sure there's miracles that happen in my life that I don't see. But that's the way it is. That's the, the nature of human beings. The you know nature the, of human you beings. Know the rational way of looking at this? Because I, I, I kind of, to me, the rational thing is always what, what emerges. The rational way to understand this concept is the following, is that when you say like a miracle happened to you, whenever you look at anything that happened to you, okay, if you really can step back and you can take a look at all the outcomes that could have also happened from a previous cause, and if you're completely honest with yourself, um, you start noticing the magic a little bit. There, because there were there were two responses to, Hol- to, to the Holocaust survivors. There were two responses for the Holocaust. One came out of the Holocaust and said, where was God? God deserted us. Yeah. And the other one came out of the Holocaust and said, where wasn't God? Every single moment of my survival was a miracle. And it's interesting. I've heard, From the perspective of the I've heard to- two completely different stories. And I, I've spoken to many survivors over the course of my life. Interesting. And some survivors, they're like, and they're, actually that was a lot of the, the fathers of the state of Israel 
lot of their methodology was God deserted us. God doesn't care about us anymore. We got to take it into our own hands. That's very true. And where you have some people, like especially some very you know religious survivors who were like, you have no idea. Every single moment, I couldn't believe. It didn't make any sense. I remember my grandfather telling me part of it. You know, he told me his story, and he he was in a forest, and he he was shot twice, and he couldn't move, and some peasant pulled him into his house and nursed him back to health for four months. Like, it didn't make any make sense to sense. him. Like some random, and, and he was a Jew. So that's what I mean. If, you, if, if these people go back, if you go back to the chain of events and you look at all the things that rationally, logically could have happened, um, you can construct some extremely rational scenarios where, where terrible things happen. Not, every, not everything that's happened to you is no. America. What happens no, is, here's no. the problem. And here's the problem. A lot of people attribute nature to miracles and miracles to nature. For example, let's look at the Holocaust. And I'm not here to define or to decide. This is, I'm just generalizing. I'm just using it as a metaphor. So you can say, why did God let Hitler exist? Or you can say that this world is made up of free choice. Hitler had free choice and he did really stupid things with his free choice. And he was able to, with his words, get millions of people to follow him. It didn't make any sense. But it wasn't God. It was God allowing this world to live in free choice. But, but it's very easy to say, but why did God create Hitler? You know, it's a Job. It's, it's, it's a Job terminology. He, Job turns to God and says, why did you, you know, you created the wicked. You created the righteous. Why do you give reward to the righteous and, and punish the wicked? That's the way you created it. That's it's a Job version. But we know that's not true. Because God created everyone with free choice. Some people choose to be wicked, and some people choose to be righteous. That, that critique of, of the existence of the old world, that, that standard, which is probably the biggest critique of God. But it's so elementary. It's, it's so elementary, elementary. elementary. It's, it rests on a presupposition that human beings have no free choice. But, right? but it wouldn't make any sense. Right? It's like, I, God created this man to do this, this, this. The reality this, this is, Fred, I can go into Walmart at Plattsburgh, and I could look at, I, I could guy. buy myself not just a rifle, I can buy myself a semi-automatic gun with, a, with, a, with an ID. As long as I'm 21 years old, if I, have a, I can get a semi-automatic gun, I've tried it in my, own, in my life. I just was so, I was so fascinated by the idea. I went over to Walmart, I gave him my ID for $125. It's not even a, a huge investment. I can buy myself a semi-automatic gun and a full thing of ammunition. And And I can go into the parking lot in Walmart and just start shooting. Yeah, that's right. That is complete free choice. Complete free choice. My father saw a man in Walmart in Miami. And he said he had to go talk to him because he saw a man at Walmart. He was with a couple kids and there's kids everywhere. And he has a whole shopping cart. The entire shopping cart full of rifles and guns and and ammunition. And he said he saw him there. And then he saw him, I think he was right outside, where he left a bag with a gun while he was going and doing something else. And there was a bag with a gun, like, out there in the open. And that's when my dad just couldn't handle it. He just had to go talk to him. Like, excuse me, like, do you think this is, like, you know, I think I was just like, no, you know what, I'm protecting my family, I'm protecting my land, this is it, this is my rights, right? It's like there's a, there's a rationalization of it, like, that's, that's perfect. So I'm saying that, so, so to, we're rationalizing the wrong things, we're putting 
the nature on the wrong things and the miracle on the wrong things. But what if we're just like aware of like every little thing, you know, like what if you're eating a bowl of spaghetti and you're like, this is incredible that I have a bowl of spaghetti in front of me. Like, what is this noodle? What is this shape? Like, what is this everything? But Where did it come from? In a plate? With, with forks? Who would have been? So it, when, if you're always just cons- like, like aware of those things, like how can you, how is it possible to say that no one who experienced miracles like are aware of them? Like for sure, at some point you could, you could. We're not could saying that no one who experienced miracles is aware of them. What we're saying is no one who experiences miracles is aware of their own miracles. You can talk from today to tomorrow. You can say, oh, wow, it's amazing. Really? Because when true miracle, the fact when you say, oh, the fork is a miracle. Wonderful. I'm proud of you. Fork is a miracle. You're right. But what about the fact that you didn't even see that yesterday when you were crossing the street, there was a car that missed you by a fraction of a second. And had you been a fraction of a second walking a little slower, it would have hit you. Because the guy wasn't looking because he was looking at his phone when he, went, when he turned the corner. Okay. But you were like, oh my gosh. Well, and then you continued walking. I understand where I left two minutes later and that changed the Can whole entire course of my life. There are so many people... I mean, there are people who, 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 I have a friend who was working at, in the World Trade Center and he had a Brit the morning and he decided to go to the Brit and he ended up going to work late and as a result, he was on the subway right. when, the, when, the, when, the, when the World Trade Center was hit. He didn't oh, see it. He, this guy. His father was, was late because of This really? guy. And he, this, this guy did not think it was a miracle. He thought it was coincidence. Absolutely. I'm like, dude, <laughs> every other day of the week, months and months and months and months, you are always at work. You're, I know you. You're like a creature of habit. You are work on time every single day. You decided to go to this Brit on that particular day. You don't call that a miracle? No. It was just coincidence. Well, can you call this? This is his masan. The master of the miracle does not recognize the miracle is taking place. It doesn't appear to him as a miracle. You need someone to come to you and say, dude, that was a miracle. That was a miracle because there's a lot of other people that didn't merit that miracle. Oh, so then he starts asking me, but what about everyone else? Why didn't God make miracles for them? See, again, we, we so often attribute... Then it's like, exactly. Then that, it's like, that's turning the miracle into God. Yeah. You're turning the miracle. You're literally creating God-like attributes to the miracle. When it's just a miracle. You follow? Okay. So, so now... How do, we, how do we define a miracle? Hold on. Let's first define nature. Then we can define the miracle. Okay. We haven't even started defining nature. Teva comes from the Hebrew word tet, bet ayin, which means to sink. Teva, tet, bet ayin, to sink. Nature is the sinking of godliness. Godliness is submerged in the natural world and God is not seen. I look at this table and Hashem is not a parent in the table. But this table has a spark of God within it. An inanimate spark of God within it. 
nature is godliness submerged in the natural world. The same goes with other aspects of nature. All aspects of nature have their source in godliness, and they express some aspect of godliness inspired and directed from what? From, we know the source. All aspects of nature have their source in godliness and they express some aspect of godliness inspired and directed from what element of God? From, from, oh, I would say the Memale. Memale Kalalmin. Yeah. What's Memale Kalalmin? Some that's uh, according to us, like the light of God that each of us can receive. Peripheral? No. no. The peripheral is Msovev. Memale Kalalmin, the light of Hashem that fills all matter in an internal way specific to every individual. So Teva is directly connected to to the light of God that fills every aspect of this world. Let's go back to that analogy that we keep on using, that Kabbalah loves to use. The analogy of the teacher and the student. When the teacher teaches, every student is able to get the information they can handle because the student relates to it in a certain way. So the same thing with nature. Hashem is totally present in it. But Hashem has imbued himself in nature in such a way that someone can say that there's godliness particular to every aspect of nature. A unique element of godliness. That's how Mimale can work. You see, the Greeks, they couldn't handle this. How could the same God be kind and severe? How can the same God be the God of the table and the God of me? The table is the table and I am me. We're so different. If you want to say there's a God of the table, call it the God of the table. There's different up somewhere. There's a lot of gods. This is what they believed, right? This is the basis of Greek mythology. But if you truly understand what Mamale Kawamim is, you understand that you can have Elements and aspects of God that are unique to every single element in nature. But the way it looks to us in nature is this is a table and I'm me. You follow? Yeah, like the teeth. Hmm? Like the teeth. Exactly. Exactly. And nature is, nature is like that? That's how nature is. You understand nature? It's, it's the same. It's the same. Uh, it's, it goes back to the objection of, of, you know, God is good. God is omnipotent. So how can those? But that's happen? elementary. I know. I, no, no. Of course. I'll tell you why it's elementary. Of because it's elementary. then you're just looking at God in a way of sovev. Of course. It's peripheral. What is great God? God is the old man with the right. white beard. That's right. It's sitting in the right. sky. The exactly. So, but I agree. And, and, and but that to me, that elementary way of conceiving it is at the root of the objection of how can there be evil in the world, right? If there was a God, there would be no evil in the world, right? That's a, 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 if you want, I believe the vast majority of atheists 
have that objection to it's, the existence of God, it's right? It's easy so to... If God was good and he was all-powerful, then there would be no evil in the world. So it's either he's not all-powerful or he's not all-good. Haha, <laughs> gotcha. And it's like, no. It's like, so elementary it, in its thinking. It's like even good is itself a category that would have been created by God. Exactly. Evil is itself a category that would have been created by God. So yeah, even through everything that's evil, there must be elements, maybe they're more concealed, maybe they're less intense, maybe less, but you have to be able to deal with a high level of nuance to see that concept. Right. I actually want to add an element to this that's going to confuse you more. You seem excited about that, the prospect of that. (laughs) In order for free choice to exist, nature has to exist. Because if you thought the sun rising in the morning was a miracle every single day, you wouldn't have free choice. You would see the godliness in everything. It needs to be like super, super, super concealed. It has to be super concealed. There's no other way to have free choice. Which means if you woke up in the morning and you're like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. I'm alive. There's a sun and there's a wow. I mean, here in Montreal, it's an unbelievable thing. You, you look out the window and one day it all looks like winter. And two days later, one serious rain, boom, it's like green. If that happened every single day, I mean, that, that's a, it's an unbelievable moment. It's an unbelievable moment. The, the, it, and it, in other places that I've lived, it, it happens slowly. It's progressive. In Chicago, it happens over the course of like three, four, five weeks. So you don't see it. Here, it's like, boom, it's instant. It's like, what just happened to this world? It went from this bare world to this green world overnight, literally overnight. So if that happened every single day, then you'd have no choice but to say, there's something greater than me that's, that's out there. And what would end up happening as a result of that is that we'd all see a certain element of godliness in every element of our life, and we wouldn't have free choice. So in order for free choice to exist, nature has to exist also. Nature, which means the element of godliness that is submerged in this natural world and is not seen as godliness. For example, it'd be hard pressed if you're not a believer to believe that there's an element of God in this table. Most people would say, what do you mean? It's made up of wood and metal and plastic and the plastic came from this factory and the wood came from this forest that was turned into this thing and the metal came from this place and together then this place they fashioned and molded it and voila. Where the metal come from? Right. And as God says to the scientists, Oh, you can make your man, go find your own DNA. Yeah, right? After a long time. Why don't you go create metal? Why yeah. don't you go create yeah. a tree? Yeah. What do you mean you created the, the what do you mean you created this table? You didn't create this All table. You did is transform. Exactly. All we did is transform. Exactly. But we have to But we have, say we created. Oh, wow. We're creative. Everybody's creative now, right? You doodle on a piece of paper. I created. Go get your own pen. Go get your own paper. Yeah. My son has <laughs> equations at uh, four years old. He's Einstein. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody's Einstein now. <laughs> but, right? So we say, we take, we attribute creation to ourselves. Right? Right. But, okay. You know what? You go invent your own words. Go write a book with them. Yeah, exactly. Let's see how that works out for you. Yeah. Let's see how that works out for you. Make your own language. Go make a language. Make words. The best words ever. They're better than any other words. 
and write the best book ever, and let's see how that works out for you. I'm sure it'll be perfect. You know, or it's like the, the accident, like random theory of existence, that everything is just, just all these laws of randomness and whatever, like this just emerged. And, and you know, people talk about like the, the, uh, the, uh, the monkeys on the typewriters, you know. Like, exactly. Oh, you know, among, monkeys on typewriters, let them play around enough. And eventually they're going to come up with a book like a I Shakespeare. Al- book. I always say that the, you know, really? the day Let's that, I, that. The day that I meet a monkey who's doing a study on me, I will believe in evolution. <laughs> you don't know. When I meet a monkey that does a study on me, I believe in evolution. You don't talk his language. Oh, that's your excuse? <laughs> that's your excuse, really? That's the best you can come up with? Come on, there's got to be something a little more scientific than that. <laughs> Don't talk his language. We do a lot of observing of them, so... I mean, we would not... Yeah, but maybe they're looking at us. <laughs> maybe they think they're the visitors of the zoo, yes. and they're looking at us. Yeah, we love those. We love those little, like, mind tricks. Like, yeah. well, you know, maybe... Uh... Maybe there's there's a million other universes and we just don't know. We're just here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great. Let's let's welcome let's, to the world of sci-fi. But by the way, <laughs> it's amazing how those musings are very mainstream in science. But the proposition that there must have been an intention behind right. the start of these right. that's super <laughs> controversial. That all of a sudden, like when it right. comes to like hypothesizing. And I, I, all I have to do is I have to give it a scientific sounding name, like super string theory. Oh my God, it's super string theory. Wow, it's interesting. And you start reading the nonsense. What is that? We're, there is not a single shred of evidence whatsoever. There's never been, right? It's just based on mathematical... What do you mean the string theory? Yeah, it's, my it's, professor... It's, but it's super string My professor theory. is smart. And my he... professor is a PhD from, from UCAL. Who the hell are you? You know? <laughs> and it's like it's like... We read these musings, and it's like, my God, there's, there's been no evidence of this. It's just hypothetical mathematics, complete hypothetical, and it's people buy the books, and they go to the TED Talks, and it's like they're fascinated by it. It's like, okay, but the proposition that there would have been something akin to an intention behind the beginning of the entire Big Bang, it's like, it's like Rupert Sheldrake says. It was modern science says, I can explain everything, everything, except for the origin of everything. So this is what science does. Science says, spot me one miracle, spot me one miracle, and I'll explain everything else. And the miracle is the sudden appearance of all matter and all laws and all rules of existence in a single instant out of nowhere. Just give me that. Otherwise known as the Big Bang. (laughs) Just, just, Just give me that, and I'll explain everything else. It's like, no man, you don't get that. That's the biggest thing of all. Go find your own DNA. That, that's the biggest thing of all. I will not give you that. If your account cannot account for that, then everything else that you're doing is derivative. My, right? My wife has recently become obsessed with these, um, these DNA things. The 23 and Me yeah. and, uh, and Ancestry.com yeah. and all these DNA yeah. things. And she's like, reading up and talking so, so we talk about it and it's just unbelievable like that that literally people hold in their bodies dna that could be 500 years old and we can tell you about your ancestry based on that like it's literally in the i mean how does that ha- how go explain how that happens 
That's way too advanced for the human mind to truly understand mm. the elements of holding 500 years of your family's DNA within you mm. just because you are born. It's crazy. Yeah. And how did we get that DNA? We literally swabbed your cheek. <laughs> we got it from your saliva. Yeah. It's crazy. It, it, it's, it's crazy. You know, I was having a big debate as a friend of mine who's a PhD in physics and theoretical physics and we had, we had a very big debate about something one day and that debate, I think, ended our friendship. But like, <laughs> I guess you weren't friends to begin with. No, no. We're, we're, but it, it was an irreconcilable difference. It was, I couldn't accept what he was saying. And I'm saying that, you know, when you talk about an, an equation, like energy equals matter times speed of light squared, okay? When you're, when you're doing a, a, like, a, like a physical equation, okay? So my point was, energy is not mass times the speed of light squared. It's not. What you're doing there is you're simply describing a mathematical relationship between two different things. You're describing, you're measuring, right, the relationship between different concepts, right? And you're saying, no, energy is that. Like when I'm making a, a thing, it is that. And to me, like, the root of it is this, is that, that he believes that the representational models of reality that we create actually describe reality. And I believe that, no, I believe that reality exists in its own essences. And then after that, way after, we come up with some representational models, and some of them do describe some aspects of those realities, right? But not all aspects. And of course, the purpose of science is to keep trying to find more and more and better and better representational models, but we can never confuse the models with the reality itself. That's kind of what you're saying, is that to really understand the thing itself, to really understand the essence of the thing, we can't do it with these models. We just can't. It's so important in the study of Kabbalah to truly understand nature. So I want to stop here in our Kabbalah study today because I want you to really spend some time and marinate on this idea of what nature is. What is nature? What are the elements of nature? How does nature come about? You have to use your progressive mind, uh, uh, you know, your, 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 the, you have to synthesize between what you know scientifically and maybe what you know Kabbalistically because science is, is the study of nature. That's what it is. Science ends. At the, the moment we start talking about anything beyond nature, science ends. So because we know so much about nature and because nature is so much interconnected into everything we know, I wanna spend some time now over the course of this week thinking about everything I know about nature because next week when we start talking about miracles and then we're gonna talk about the person who the miracle happens to doesn't understand the miracle. To start even having this conversation about miracles, you have to go through the whole process of everything you know about nature. And then next week, that's where we're gonna start with this idea of miracles. Because it's, 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 it's going to blow all of the elements of science out of the water. If you truly understand the Kabbalistic understanding of, 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 of miracles. Hmm.
in a way, nature is all we can ever know with, with, with right, with, with like the conscious mind. So that, that's why, in a way, it makes a lot of sense to me that the, the, the ballet, that the person that miracle happens to, will never see it as a miracle. I mean, we'll see it as the operation of natural laws. That's always the way we're going to see it. Right. right. Um, and it's funny because even, even in the, uh, the, the uh, exodus, it, it, the way we tell the story makes no sense. True. The way we tell the story makes no sense at all. And we should not be surprised if 80-year-old kids who are smart already have some doubts about the story. You know, you know, you know, you know that joke. I don't know, buddy. I don't know. You know that joke. Little, little, little Peter comes from Hebrew school one day, and he's like, "Mom, you will not believe what our teacher said." So, what did your teacher say? So, Moses and the Jews are walking through the desert, and there was a bomb that exploded on the Egyptians, and then they took their machine guns and they were shooting at the Egyptians, and they were going back and forth. It was crazy. It's grenades and. Is that what your teacher told you? No, it's not what my teacher told you, but you won't believe what he really said. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and, and it's, it's the way we tell the story, right? With like, miracle, miracle, miracle. We completely devalue the whole concept of a miracle. And that's, I think if we, if we switched the script a bit, if we started saying it as a series of unfortunate events that befell on Pharaoh, right? And I, I think... Pharaoh of Egypt in the series of unfortunate events. Yeah, that's right. I think we could slowly get to the concept of a miracle. So through that nature, is, that is it why, would be a little bit more compelling. Fred, I agree with you 100%. And that is why I think that we need to define it. We need to define these things because it's true. We're, we're training all these kids and telling them about these miracles when we're not even dis- telling them what a miracle is. First of all, just think about for, from a smart 80-year-old perspective. I, I'm interested in the smart 80-year-old. Why? Because I believe a smart 80-year-old is in a way smarter than 80% of adults, okay? Because they have a very fresh mind, they have all the tools, they're starting to be able to reason, they perceive things in a very fresh way, but they're also like smart, but they have no experience. They also have the naive day, so they see, they experience everything for the first time, okay? The smart 80-year-old, this is where it begins, okay? Because we tell them that story. So just think about it from their perspective, okay? Tell them the story. Miracle and miracle and miracle and miracle and miracle and miracle and then they do the the the, the uh, golden calf. Okay. What? Like I'm sorry. It's like you've lost Why? me. Why? Exactly. You've lost me. You've lost me completely. Like miracle, 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 miracle. God comes down Himself. God comes down Himself and, and greets people <laughs> and talks to them directly and this, this, that, and then. Golden calf. Same Why? people. Like, just because Moses is like 24 hours late. What? I, I think that the smart eight-year-old, this story does not pass. It, it, they don't accept it. They, it's very confusing. It's very... There's no way a smart, rational eight-year-old kid takes that story and says like, okay, these adults are a little <laughs> crazy. Or I have to just pretend like I'm cool with this, or I have no choice. Like, or this week's, or whoever, whatever. I just want to eat, so like, just get over with it. You know, I, I I don't think that it makes sense. Or or this week's Torah portion. Mm-hmm. Most people read the Torah portion, see the spies, like yeah, I mean the spies are right. Like why are you making a big deal about it, Moses? Spies are right. They're giants. They're giants yeah. The place is not conquerable. Like what do you like? What are you saying? We're not soldiers. Like, come on, like it's we have no idea rational. what we're doing. It's totally rational. And, 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 and we want the people to say the spies are wrong. The spy, right. I don't think the spies are wrong. I think the spies are the right. The spies are not wrong. If I, look at, if I look at 
for just from my perspective, I think the spies are right. Like if I would, if I was a spy, I would have done the same thing. But they're punished, and 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 like we look at them as like these evil people. But hold on a second, they're holy people, and they're not wrong. <laughs> you know. And then you 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 without Kabbalah, you miss the entire point. And and we we're trying to, uh, we're we're not teaching the elements to understand these these ideas in the Torah. And we're expecting people to take it like that. We're expecting people to take it like that. And they, they don't. But we pretend they do. But in reality, they don't. There's that, that's what this guy. You know, the rabbi's getting up and saying the spies were wrong. What do you mean the spies were wrong? I'm looking at the Torah and I'm saying, the spies are pretty right. I mean, if it's I wrong. went and spied the land. Yeah, don't you find it strange when a rabbi comes up and says, well, they were wrong because the same God that took them out of Egypt, the same God that did all these miracles, the same God told them that they would have the land. Elementary. So they elementary. Time out. Elementary. Time out. You're, you, Rabbi, are saying that. These guys were the top 12 people. They witnessed that. Yeah. You don't think they had your capacity to... You don't think that... that you think that you can see it clearer than they saw it? The top 12 people that actually experienced Oh, it? but hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah, happy birthday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You've done nothing, actually. Right? Yeah. With hindsight, what you do is you do nothing. Exactly. You're just like it's a... a cop-out. Easy cop-out. You're, you're the, the Monday morning quarterback. You just... You watch the game. Right? You've never played the game. Exactly. You've watched the game. Yeah. So and that's it. Anything. You're, you're expecting us to have, it's a huge, see, that's the thing. The Torah is not a huge leap of faith. It's a tiny, it's about so. the same amount of faith as science is. Really, if you look at it from a Kabbalistic perspective. I think it's smaller. Interesting. I think it's a smaller leap of faith. Interesting. Because to me, I, I really, it's a deformation, but I, I train myself to look at everything rationally in my life. And the way I separate it from science is I separate it from science through reason. I just thought it was an outlandish claim, and I believed it for many years. But the claim that at the root of existence is chaos and disorder, I think it's an outlandish claim. When everything we know about the universe is order, suggests order. Right. The very concept of a scientific law. I mean, what is that? Like, where does it come from? Why is it chaos? Why is the fundamental feature of the cosmos chaos? when everything we know about the cosmos suggests order. I, I, I think it's an extraordinary claim. And when you have an extraordinary claim, you have to prevent, prevent, present evidence for it. Well, and, what are you doing? That's why you don't want to say that. Okay. One of them is a second one. It's one of them. It's the one you're holding. So you see, I, I think it's a smaller leap of faith than, than science is. I really think it's very interesting. I have to think about that because I've always thought about it in a way that it wasn't a smaller leap of faith, that it was a bigger leap of faith. Very, no, very interesting. It's not. And I actually very, took a note from one of, our, one of our past cl- classes. Uh, I actually took a note. And I'm, I'm, if you want to give me two seconds. You have two, se- you have two seconds. I wrote here, the smallest leap of faith is when we were talking about Sovev Kol Almi. Give me 30 seconds, okay? So the, I call it the smallest leap of faith that there is, is this one. It's sort of common. Is, is this, is there must be something beyond the universe because it as a whole is itself a creation, right? Yes. So you have to believe that the universe it was It as created. a whole is itself a creation, yeah, yes. So the universe was created. Yes. Nothing creates itself. Yes. Nothing creates itself. Yes. And so I said, 
that this is the smallest leap of faith, you could even call it rational, is that before the creation, there must have been something akin to a desire to create this specific universe. Yes. That's the smallest leap of faith that there is. There can't be a smaller leap of faith. You understand what I'm saying? That's interesting. There couldn't be a smaller leap of faith than that. That's very interesting. Science is a way bigger leap of faith. That's an amazing statement. That's an amazing statement. That really blows science out of the water. Completely. Completely. Think about that. Science is a theory of existence, right? Not as an What do you think? I don't know. I, th- I thought science is over becoming like over the Torah, over it's like contrary to what it's written sometimes. That's very interesting. Science is becoming like something. Science is a, is a religion for our society. It's very, very interesting. It's the religion. But as a religion, it sucks. It's really, extru- it's, it's dogmatic. It makes outlandish claims. It's, it, it's, that's how I, I separated myself from science way before I got into Judaism and stuff. It's like, I separated myself from science because a lot of what the high priests were saying, it just wasn't rational. It didn't make sense. It was too faith-based. It was too dogmatic. The same reason I rejected the, the Judaism of my Jules Saint Laurent Sephardic rabbis, okay? I ended, like, that same process that led me to reject that led me many years later to reject science as, as a religion because it's completely non-credible as a religion. I love it as a, as a methodology of truth, truth, of practical applications and of, of, of acquisition of knowledge. That's, that's the greatest tool we've ever built for that. But as a theory of existence of the cosmos and of how we should live within it, it's really extremely primitive I think there were some forms of religion in the prehistoric age that were more sophisticated. Amazing. No? Yeah. No, in the prehistoric I... age, there were versions of, there were types of theories that were a lot more sophisticated than scientists. And yet, it's our dominant ideology, it's our religion, it's, we're not supposed to question it. Anything that we believe, it's, we... It's so interesting, we literally exactly. attribute it is it a religion? It's so interesting. It is a religion, but it's, more, it's worse than a religion because what happens is that anything that we believe... Why am I so interested lately in the, the whole concept of the spiritual... The Rupert Sheldrake book, the spiritual practices and science, scientific studies about it? Because when you want to talk about meditation, the only way you can talk about it credibly is to show the science on meditation. When you want to talk about prayer, the only way you can talk about it credibly is to say there's scientific studies that show exactly. that prayer works. Yeah. So it's our legitimate... There's scientific studies that show that prayer works? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So there's that, it's, it's, what, what, what's interesting here is not because... But we know that prayer is way older than science. Right. So we know that the process that generated prayer was not the process of science. Science came way after the fact and started describing some elements of it. So science can't take credit for that in any way, shape, or form. Um, but, but so we know that there's a process of, of, of finding things that are valuable and that exist and that are true, that are not through science. We know that that exists. However, in order to invest one of those phenomena with truth and with value and reality, we have to explain it in terms of science. 
We must legitimate it in terms of science. It's our legitimating discourse. How does that make any sense? How does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense. That does not make any I have to legitimate something with science, something that was created and that had its, its positive effects way before the idea of science ever was born. And now science is saying that those, those things have a reality and a truth to them. Why is it that in order to invest that thing with a reality, I must legitimate in the language of science? And I know, I know the reason why. It's because there's also a lot of bad religion and a lot of charlatanism in religion. Yes, of course. And religion also lends itself to the darkest aspects of human nature of manipulation and power and control and money. And of course, I get it. I get, and, and that, by the way, was extremely true of Christianity. And so it's a Christian world that, that, that became rational by rejecting religion wholesale. Okay, that's how it played out. But fundamentally, from a from logical point of view, it doesn't make sense. We have to go beyond that, that rejection of religion mode in order to really understand what's going on in nature of that. You see, like, we only have one life. And we have to come up, like, this is the most important thing, is, like, understanding the essence of the truth of what really exists. That's the most important thing. I can't afford to be um, blinded by, to have a selective viewpoint of science in order to see truth. I, you know, we just can't afford it. It's amazing. Something to really think about, huh? The smallest leap of faith. It's very interesting. Science, it's too profound, you know. Let's go on to Talmud. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode. 